Welcome to Fintech Underground by Alpaca, a podcast devoted to stock trading API. From trading with algorithms to connecting apps to building out services, Alpaca is built for developers and traders. And with that being said, let's get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Fintech Underground by Alpaca. In each episode, we aim to explore a different area within Fintech. In today's episode, we have the honor to speak to Ben, the founder and CEO of Unify Money. Aiming to be an all-in-one finance platform, Unify Money allows users the ability to open a checking account, an investing account, and soon to launch credit card. Not only that, but users wishing to invest can choose between a variety of assets, consisting of equities, precious metals, and cryptocurrencies. As Ben spent the vast majority of his career in fintech, Yoshi, CEO and co-founder of Alpaca, dives deep in today's episode into Ben's background and experience starting Unify Money. So let's get started. Hi, Ben. Nice meeting you. And thank you very much for appearing our podcast today, Fintech Underground. I know we have a lot to talk about very like rich, long experience in fintech and the, you know, running the fintech company. So like Ben, like, you know, do you want to talk a little bit about Unify Money and the, what do you do there? Hi, Yoshi. Great to be chatting with you and, and thanks for the invite. So yeah, I'm the founder and CEO of Unify Money. We are a multi-asset investment and money management app for mass affluent consumers. We are really leading the rebundling of financial services to bring simplicity and automation to customers' wealth management, allowing them to manage most, if not all, of their money in a, in a single interface. That's super, because like, you know, I see that there are many um, you know, innovation happening in this sector. There's a lot of uh, you know, infrastructures for the broker dealer to the banking, to the credit card issuing, of course, like Alpaca uh, being the one of the infrastructure for the broker dealer. So like, you know, I'm super keen to like, you know, dig in deep, but like, you know, um, as you consolidate, uh, you know, a lot of the financial services features, do you want to like, kind of talk about like, what is the key, you know, the component that you're very much bullish about that you're currently offering uh, from your app? I think history can teach us a lot about what consumers really want. And it's sometimes easy to get lost uh, with every new fintech focusing on one pretty discrete, typically, and generally the more exciting elements of the financial ecosystem. But consumers and needs haven't really changed around money. If you really reduce it down, we all have the same ambitions of money. We all want the same outcomes. We want to be financially independent, financially secure. Very few of us like the effort of managing money. And there's an irony in the fintech evolution, which is we've actually, whilst we may individually be optimizing for one or other discrete part of the financial ecosystem, in total, we've actually made it harder to manage your money. Now, 30 years ago, it would be pretty unusual to have more than one banking relationship and you would buy every product, good, bad or indifferent from that bank. And at least it was simple. At least you knew where you stood and you know you knew who to talk to and which company you had to go to. It's now not uncommon to have 10 or 15 separate apps to manage your money. And the job of synthesizing that is on the consumer. And it's that friction and that manual labor where a huge amount of value is lost because consumers don't want to do hard, difficult, complex, manual things on a repetitive basis, which is what managing money across 15 apps demands. You know, we think we're in a transition period. 30 years ago, you had one banking relationship. Today, you have a plethora of financial fintech apps and traditional apps. We think the future is not managing all your money on 10 or 15 apps. It's managing your money on one or two. And we're really helping to lead that rebundling of financial services. The beauty and the great benefit, though, is because in the old days, everything would be built by one bank and you can only be good at so many things. 
in the future and what we're doing is we're finding best of breed providers and doing the bundling for the consumer so that they get a very holistic experience whereas underneath we're doing the hard work to connect all of these separate disparate platforms it's an interesting point right like you know because i think like you know you you've been in the industry for some time and I think like, you know, how we think about it in a bird eye view is that there's a repetitive, like going back and forth of uh, bundling and unbundling. And like, it's like kind of, it swings around. And I think like when the Robinhood came out early 2010, it's really like unbundling and like, let's focus on trading. And of course now, like, you know, they are bundling up with, you know, multiple services. And as you say that, like, you know, it's now the, from the unbundling to bundling for the fintech app side. I think like, you know, the, um, What's also makes it challenging, though, is that bundling, I feel like, you know, takes more effort and time because like, you know, especially financial services, we deal with the different regulations and infrastructure, each for the banking and the crypto and the securities and the insurance and stuff like that. So how are you managing that as a startup going into this era of unbundling to the bundling phase of the financial services apps? What is the challenge that you're seeing and how are you managing that? You've absolutely nailed it. The hardest thing here is trying to get different platforms, different companies sitting in different regulated markets, highly regulated markets to work together. And that's really our moat. That's what we've solved for. We have a 108-year-old publicly listed bank in Kansas City that we're working with and a six-month-old fraud startup in New York City, crypto, precious metals, credit card. And we've got all of these companies to work together in a way that the consumer feels is a seamless experience. And it's not to do with technology at all. Um, the technology is actually fairly straightforward. It's just work. It's getting the head of compliance, head of risk, head of legal at these different entities to agree not only to work with us, but to work with others to create this holistic consumer experience. And that is what has taken a huge amount of effort. And it's the opposite of what you think doing a startup would be about. You'd think it would be about creating net new technology and, you know, weird and wonderful algorithms and things that no one's ever thought of before. But what we're solving for is really psychology and, you know, compliance is very subjective. Risk is very, very subjective. So it's not about reading a manual and simply interpreting it. It's about working with the people who own compliance, risk, and legal at these different entities and getting them to agree and align on a vision, number one, and a process, number two, that they are comfortable with. And that that is really the what we've sold for and continue to solve for. And it's, you know, it's it's hard in things like crypto because that carries a lot of emotional energy around it, particularly for traditional bankers and people in tr more traditional industries. But it's no it's no different in every element of this of the financial ecosystem. You know, you always need to get these people to agree to a vision, to agree to the process and the operational construct and work together. And I, I think the only way we've been successful with that is that we have a team who have, on average, 20 to 30 years experience in financial services, all sorts of different parts of financial services. We have people from banking, people from payments, people from the investment community, people from the regulator. And it's not just what the knowledge and experience we have, it's the contacts and the networks that we've been able to tap into to help us solve and navigate these discussions that completely makes sense uh dealing with a lot of uh compliance and uh how to present it in a way that i guess like everyone's happy about uh, because of like you know each of the regulations come with the different levels of the compliance and the legal aspect of it while dealing with that like you know i feel like thinking about this finance apps 
including trading to the challenger bank to the you know those payments apps there's always like you know this component of um, customer acquisition i feel like you know it's always like customer acquisition is a very strong component and of uh, running the company of course in addition to figuring out all the compliance and legal and creating the holistic experience, putting everything together. How are you fighting that? Like, I feel there are a lot of competitions in this market. And like, you know, why do you think there's a differentiation? Like, you know, why do you think you can win in this market? The question we got asked when we started on this journey was, uh, well, the, the question a lot of investors would ask or pose is they didn't think that it was possible to build a product like this particularly with the, you know, the level of funding we were at. And, you know, we've solved that question. We're in the app store, we're working. It's a great product. Uh, We've delivered a a very sophisticated, very broad platform in in a relatively short amount of time with very limited resources. So we definitely solved for that. And that, but having a great product is necessary, but insufficient. And we we're relatively early in our acquisition journey. I think in financial services, you have to, you have to play the, there's a couple of things. It's not just other fintechs. We're, We're actually fighting 50 years of massive investment by the big brand banks in training customers to think a certain way. So if you look at the top 10, top 15 banks, they spend $15 billion a year in the US on marketing for a commodity product. It's an extraordinary amount of money. Chase spends $2.6 billion annually. That's more than Apple spends globally on marketing. So you need to ask your question, why? And it's it's because they're, you know, they're buying inertia. They're trying to convince consumers just through the weight of their power. They're the ones you see on the recommendation sites. They're the ones that you hear of most often. And that helps create a fantastic inertia and a, and a barrier around them because it's impossible to compete with a company with $2.6 billion through traditional means. So we, we can't fight with them through traditional means. So we have to fight with them through you know, an asymmetric warfare, asymmetric marketing warfare. And we, we do that firstly by having a differentiated product and offering value for money. You know, value for money is something that is surprisingly missing from my, most financial services brand definitions. And it's, it's absolutely the opposite of what the big brand banks in particular deliver. So that's, that's a starting point. We also, you know, we've gone to market in a slightly alternative way. We branded ourselves at one point as being the only bank in the world with an in-house comedy sketch team. And we created a whole series of satirical videos, really poking fun at the big brand banks and ourselves as well as consumers, the frankly bizarre relationship we often have with big brand banks and how we give them so much value and they give us so little in return. And yet we still stay with them. And there's all sorts of really weird behavior and psychologies that we exhibit as consumers as regards big brand banks. And a lot of it is to do with the way they talk to us and have done for decades and trained us, you know, for example, not to think of cash as an investable asset. We don't inherently look for the return on, on investment from our cash holdings. We just go, well, it's safe. You know, it's safe. It's okay. It's actually, it's dying, you know, inflation at three or 4%. It's killing your money slowly whilst the bank is selling those same funds. They're getting them from you um, interest-free and they're selling them at 15, 20%. And, you know, therein lies the 26 executive jets that Chase has. That was one thing. But then, you know, having compelling content and being funny and, you know, having an alternative view of the world is all well and good, but you still need to be reaching the right consumers and you need to be communicating to them what it is you're doing differently. And for that, there's a very, you know, there's a very well-established financial online financial publishing community, everything from Nerd Wallet, Credit Karma, Seeking Alpha, and a very, very, very long tail of other publishers who, who look at one or other element of the financial services ecosystem. And you, you need to be there. You need to play that game. We've struggled a little bit because some of the publishers are like, well, 
are you a, a neobank or are you an investment app or are you a credit card? And, and it's like, well, we're all three. And they said, well, we don't have a category for that. And I was like, absolutely right. We're a completely new category. Clearly, they're not going to create a new category just for us. So we've, we've taken a lot of time and energy to work with the publishers and ensure that they understand that you know, this is a little bit different, how we're different, what we're trying to achieve. And that takes time. You know, it, it takes time for them to write the reviews, takes time for them to understand. And it can be frustrating. You know, we're working with one publisher who did a fantastic article about how to invest in precious metals. We're the only consumer investment fintech who has precious metal investing and they didn't mention us actually let's dig into that because like i was looking into the uh, product and uh, you know i see the precious metals right in addition to crypto and uh you know of course securities and stocks so what was your decision making process to add the you know precious metals when you are deciding on the product roadmap like you know what was your experience of like you know why uh, you wanted to add that yeah, it's because it, it's so different. You know, it's a 5,000 year old asset versus a 12 year old asset. It's every millennial knows about crypto and probably has some. Uh, your average gold investor is an elderly man. It's a very unusual market. But what we're solving for is access to alternative products. So, you know, there was a couple of thought processes here. The first is that from a roadmap perspective, we want to enable all forms of alternative assets whether it's fine wine investing, sports collectibles, uh, real estate, private companies, whatever it might be. Ultimately, we, we want to solve for access so that normal consumers, without having to go find some weird app, without having to go through another KYC and AML, without having to go to the, through the pain of linking with Plaid, is able to, whenever they want, invest in these, in these assets and try it out. That's part of, and, and Precious Metals was the second after crypto. And another piece of that sort of decision process was the, if you look at some key consumer groups, Bay Area tech workers, for example, over 70% are foreign. And they, you know, the very, very high proportion of those are coming from Asia. Investing in gold in Asia is a much bigger thing than investing in gold in, you know, for domestic US consumers. So we wanted to, we wanted to talk to that need um, and that audience. The part of the solving for access is, if you try and buy gold online and you do a Google search, you very, very quickly end up with a pawnbroker in Las Vegas. It's super sketchy. Uh, so there's, there's a major barrier to people who may be interested in investing in gold or silver or platinum. It's pretty confusing on, to know where to go. So we wanted to solve for that. We wanted to provide a curated experience. It's a very well-established, very mature asset class, which is almost unknown by most millennials. So we wanted to solve for that and give people choice. I honestly don't care whether people invest in gold, silver or platinum or not, but I want to give them the choice. I don't want asset classes to be denied or, or to have artificial barriers to certain consumer groups because the industry hasn't adapted to a digital environment. So uh, during the uh, you know, securities and the, you know, banking, crypto and the precious metals, like what is the most impactful products so far that you've been witnessing from your product? So impact is obviously has different dimensions. One can look at impact. The product or uh, well, the feature, I should say, that I think is most powerful is our auto invest feature. And slight aside, but McDonald's is successful because McDonald's has a product that they pretty much enforce. So when McDonald's moved to Australia, no one liked gherkins. And everybody would just throw the gherkins against the wall because they just didn't eat gherkins in Australia, apparently. And then after three or six months, suddenly everyone started eating gherkins. And now you can't sell a burger in Australia without a gherkin in it. So they had a very clear product vision. They got very immediate feedback. Customers didn't like this weird new thing, but actually customers grew to like it. 
So one of the things we wanted to solve for is the fact that most people don't invest. Less than 30% of millennials are invested uh, or invest uh, on their own volition. And that drops even further below the age of 30. And there's a massive, massive lost amount of value for consumers in that by not investing. People who are able to, can afford to, should be, but aren't. And why aren't they? Because it's a hassle, because it's complex. You've got to make up your mind. You've got to decide. You've got to... All of these decisions, each of which is, creates cognitive overload. And the natural reaction is do nothing. I'll just wait. I'll wait. It, you know, it'll become clearer over time, but it doesn't. So the average age for saving for retirement, starting to save for retirement in the US is 32. If we could reduce that to 25, trillions of dollars would be created in value over the working life of that entire generation. So we know that awareness and education has failed in financial services. Um, it's not that people are stupid or ill-informed. It's just the market is not helping them and not making it easy for them. The financial services industry has solved for friction in payments. Why? Because it's in the economic incentive of merchants and credit card issuers to do so. There's a reason why Amazon Go is so easy and Amazon One Click and, and Uber, because everybody knows that the easier something is, the more consumers will do of it. And that's how they get paid. Now, Chase doesn't get paid if your cash is held by Vanguard in a you know, diversified ETF. So therefore, it's still as hard to save and invest as it was 20 years ago. So what we're trying to make, it, what, what we're trying to do is make saving and investing as easy as paying for an Uber, making it completely automatic. So the feature that I'm most proud of and creates the most consumer angst initially, but then consumer love is our auto invest feature. So we force our customers every month to put a minimum $25 in their robo investment account. Now they can withdraw it at any time, they can cash it out. And we get a lot of customers who haven't necessarily really understood the value proposition of the product proposition. And they immediately contact us and like, why are you forcing me to do this? I, you know, I want to turn that off. We don't. It's part of the value proposition is that we help you automatically and by default model best practices in personal financial management. It's a nominal amount, $25. You can get it out at any time. But, it, but we made the decision for you. It's our gherkin. And what we find is that after a couple of months, people are going, you know what, I should have done this years ago. This is actually quite a good idea. So, and then they start increasing the average deposits to $200, whatever they can afford. So that, that's the one, one of the ideas we had very, very early on is that dollar cost averaging shouldn't be a choice. It should be just something we all do naturally. And we, ha we have to help consumers to get them over, tip them over that barrier, that inertia to action and take the cognitive load of the decision off them. So we did it. We get a lot of flack for it, but we also get a lot of love for it because consumers recognize we're actually basically forcing them to do something that they should have done years ago and is for their own good. Got it. So, and so you continue to like focus on the uh, Bay Area millennial generation, including like, you know, a lot of um, basically like, you know, the people who came from Asia, like using the precious metals. So those are the people that like, you know, you see who's currently using our product. Our core audience is more likely to be young professionals. So these are young doctors, young lawyers, people working in finance and tech. It just happens to be some of those industry segments have a very high proportion of foreign-born users in them. So if you look at doctors, for example, 30-something percent of doctors are born abroad. In, in tech, you know, a huge proportion of people are born, uh, born abroad. So that's a consideration, but it wasn't a focus. The focus is the broad, the 15 million or so mass affluent millennials in the US, regardless of where they live or what they do. But when you look at the fintech consumer uh, market, the vast majority of those brands are focusing on, you know, quote unquote, underserved subprime consumer segments. It's the, you know, the prepaid segment. 
Whereas I didn't want to fight with other fintech brands for that audience. There's over 90 neobanks in the US, almost all of which are focused on subprime consumers. I'm looking at the massive profits of the big brand banks, and which are not based on differentiated customer experience or value for money or innovation. It's based on inertia. And that's the opportunity I saw is the billions and billions of dollars of profitability that the big brand banks are making, frankly, by not providing particularly good product or service. That's the opportunity I wanted to go for. So that's why we focused on um, mass affluent consumers. It naturally leans itself towards younger consumers because the older you get, the more habituated you get to complexity and the more complicated your life and the harder it is to even think about moving. You know, the barrier to inertia is just massively, massively higher when you're 50, 60, whatever it might be than when you're 20, 30. But that doesn't mean we're excluding anyone. It just means, you know, we're more likely to be attractive to people who are digital natives who are still in the first half of their career. Let's turn the conversation a little bit to your background, because like, you know, I see that you are so great, like, you know, working for Samsung Pay to the Fitbit, to the Visa and uh, to the Accenture, like in Nokia, it's just beautiful track record. So you worked for like, you know, many established great companies, but like, you know, what was the trigger point that like, okay, we need to start doing this? Like, what was the point that you decided to do this? I had one foray into being a founder when I was based in Indonesia and I created a company, which was a, what we called mobile bank at the time, you know, neo bank in today's language. Um, but we got, we got acquired very, very quickly by one of our bank sponsors. And that's now today's uh, largest digital bank in Indonesia. But I then left Indonesia, went to Visa in Singapore, ran innovation across the region, then moved to San Francisco to run another innovation project. But anyone who's worked in or with a big corporate knows that trying to work on innovation in a corporate environment is super, super hard. And, you know, Fitbit Pay, I, not a startup, you know, Fitbit was more than 10 years old when I joined, but we, we had a massive opportunity, I felt, to really bring together health and wellness with financial fitness similar to what Paceline is doing today, for example, that could have been Fitbit. And we had bank partners who wanted to work with us like that. But the leadership there, frankly, wasn't interested. You know, they were very, very focused on health and wellness and the health industry. They weren't interested in this idea of collaborating with financial services. So it's not something that only affects big global corporates. It also affects small companies that sometimes your vision is not matched with the executives who you know, ultimately control the resources and the direction. I think I've, you know, I'd been watching the fintech, consumer fintech space. It felt so obvious to me that somebody should be launching a product that was focused on mass affluent consumers because it's those consumers who've led the adoption of every digital market since the internet was created. And yet somehow we were ignore as an industry, we were ignoring mass affluent consumers and we weren't, I felt solving the real issues that they had, which are these very boring issues. What, what I call the sins of omission in personal finance, super boring. It's not the decisions you do make, or it's not bad decisions you make that hurt you. It's the decisions you don't make. It's leaving way too much money in a deposit account with a big brand bank. It's choosing a credit card because it's got, you know, it's trying to signal some sort of affluence, uh, metal card phenomenon. Um, but not actually a particularly effective financial product in terms of its return on your spend. And we're not dollar cost averaging because it's boring and complex and the payoff is 30 years time. So that's what I wanted to solve for because that has extraordinary power to raise people's long-term wealth creation journey. You know, it's the get rich slowly philosophy. Everyone agrees with it. Almost nobody does it because it's hard work. 
It's like having a New Year's resolution on January the 1st. You've forgotten by January the 30th or you've given it up because it's just too hard to keep on doing that manual labor. So we wanted to solve for that. We wanted to talk to people we felt were not given a choice. Uh, you bank with Chase, you bank with Bank of America, you bank with Wells, you get the same product, you just different brand. So we felt there was a real opportunity to do something different. I didn't see anyone else doing it. And, and I did talk to a few companies. I talked to Silicon Valley Bank. I thought this was something they could do. They could take their private banking solution and really you know, make it much broader. I talked to Personal Capital. I, I felt this was a really good extension of their platform. But for one reason or another, I couldn't convince them to go down that path. So I, I, in the end, I thought, screw it, I'll do it myself. So what was the like, specific catalyst that you feel like that you, know, you received, you went through? while talking with like, you know, those companies like personal capital and like, you know, those guys. Yeah. I, you know, I went through long processes with both companies and I was pitching them the vision, the product vision. And then I, I actually went to a, a seminar at Brex. So there was a number of things that sort of came to pass. One was, you know, spending a lot of time with Silicon Valley Bank, spending a lot of time with personal capital, trying to convince them to go down this route that was right for their business. And then, you know, hearing Henrique, 22 years old, zero credit card experience, having made such an amazing success. And that to me was like, well, listen, I'm, I've got 30 years experience above and beyond him in a network. I, I, maybe I can do half as good a job as Henrique in this space. And that's when I decided it's now or never. So yeah, that was, that was it. Well, that's cheers to Henrique and the Brex then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Still working on getting, you know, half their valuation, but uh, hopefully we'll get there eventually. What they've done is incredible. They've taken the most conservative uh, you know, credit cards is the last big financial services market that has almost zero innovation uh, because it's so hard to launch a credit card as a small company. And the credit card industry is incredibly old fashioned and conservative and, you know, all credit to them. They just did it. They showed the path. Wow. So I think that's like beautiful history. And I think uh, that resonates with a lot of like professionals who's working in the big companies and pursuing uh, their career and but like actually starting off something new. I mean, that's always like, you know, really, really big shift, like, you know, because I've experienced that coming from, uh, you know, working for the big corporations. So that's a beautiful story. What is that like next step for your product? And, uh, you know, where you think uh, you will be in, you know, five years, 10 years? There's two things I'm really excited about at the moment. One is we're launching our credit card in August. Uh, so we created a collaboration, and this is largely to do with my former Visa contacts, but we created a collaboration quite some time ago with Rails Bank and worked together to, to bring this credit card as a service model to the US, which is part of that sort of ambition around bringing fintech innovation to credit cards. And all credit to the Rails Bank team for seeing that opportunity and, and for diving in and, and making it happen. Um, I think the first product that's going to launch is with Paceline. Uh, the second will be with us. And I have no doubt there'll be a whole stream of super interesting, innovative products around credit. So that's that's something I'm really looking forward to. Um, it's a four, $4 trillion industry with literally no competition. Um, a handful of companies just own it. And, and it's it's our job, I think, as startups to do better by the market and to bring better propositions. The other really interesting opportunity, which I'm super excited about, is working with regional and community banks. So, you know, the big problem with consumer acquisition is that you're fighting inertia because the thought of moving bank is almost too much to bear or the thought of signing up to another app or doing something else, you know, it's work. Whereas if you're actually working with a bank, inertia is on your side and you have approximately 10,000 regional and community banks with millions and millions and millions of very happy customers. And, you know, the smaller banks are not offering the similar wealth management services that the big banks are doing. 
And we had a number of banks reach out to us and ask whether they could essentially work with us and partner to offer digital wealth management services to their customer bases. I think it's a very natural and complementary extension to work with those institutions to provide them not just with parity for the big brand banks on digital wealth management, but actually something that the big brand banks are not going to be able to compete with for decades. It's going to be a very long day in hell before Chase is going to offer crypto and precious metals and collectibles investing. Um, and yet that's something that a, a small community or regional bank could potentially deliver within a, you know, a very short period of time working with us. So those are the two things I'm really excited about at the moment. The product extension to, to include the credit card. Our credit card is going to allow you to, uh, and we're really, we're really focused on competing with Chase Sapphire Reserve, that community. Um, so we'll be paying a 2% cash back, uh, but your rewards will be paid as gold, Bitcoin, or equities. So it's a credit card that's designed to help you save and invest, not one that is designed to help you, encourage you to spend more. Uh, so working on your behalf uh, and in your interests rather than the banks, and then working with regional and community banks who I genuinely believe are working on behalf of their consumers' best interests, which is something I don't think anybody could claim the big brand banks are doing, and really helping extend their customers' access to digital financial services in all their flavors. You know, investing got fun. Over the last 10 or 15 years, it, it went from being pretty boring to being pretty exciting. You know, you can invest in uh, a copy of the Declaration of Independence on Rally Road. That stuff's inherently much, much more interesting than the way it was done 10 years ago. And I think they're predicting now that consumer retail investing will top 30% of all deal flow this year, which and 10 years ago, it was 10%. So there's been this extraordinary increase in engagement and involvement by investors or consumers in their own wealth management. And we want to be a part, as you are, in accelerating that. And if we can do that working with well-established regional and community banks with strong customer bases and strong brands, then that's that's great. We'll do it. Um, we're not purist in any way. We just want to help as many people as quickly as possible. And that sounds great. I mean, like, you know, you're, of course, like, you know, know a bunch of the network and the uh, you know, industry professionals in the payments so that a lot of banks. So like, it's a really exciting time, like, you know, that those players do need innovation. Again, like, you know, thank you very much for coming to our fintech underground. And, you know, thank you very much for sharing your insights and the experience to all of us. Uh, you know, thank you very much, Ben. Thanks, Yoshi. Been a pleasure. I also wanted to thank all of our listeners for joining us today on this episode of Fintech Underground by Alpaca. As always, check out all of our past episodes on all major streaming platforms podcasts can be found. Thank you.